This is Floss Weekly. I'm Doc Searles. This week, Dan Lynch and I talked to Miguel de Icaza, one of the earliest and biggest and most important figures in the history of Linux and much else. Um, he did Mono. He did Gnome before that, um, one of the fathers of Gnome. But he's been involved with Microsoft. He looks ahead of everything. He has some incredibly original takes on cryptocurrency, on why big companies are good and not just bad, on what EU legislation is doing that's coming along that make, may make all of our lives miserable while opening up the markets inside of um, uh, app stores. It's just incredible stuff. The guy is awesome, and that is coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Floss Weekly, episode 698, recorded Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. Miguel de Icaza. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla. IRL is a show for people who build AI and people who develop tech policies. Hosted by Bridget Todd, this season of IRL looks at AI in real life. Search for IRL in your podcast player. And by IT Pro TV. Give your team an engaging IT development platform to level up their skills. Volume discounts start at five seats. Go to itpro.tv slash twit. Make sure to mention twit30 to your IT Pro TV account executive and get 30% off or more on a business plan. Hello again, everybody, everywhere in the world. I am Doc Searles. This is Floss Weekly, and we're off to a late start today, so I want to hurry up and introduce my co-host, Dan Lynch himself. There he is with his music gear off to the, his left and uh, and his hat on and his red matching red suspenders and headphones. That's yeah, cool. and it also, it also matches the mic uh, pop cover that I've got as well. Oh, that's Everything's right, red around here. Everything's yeah. right. It's my favorite color. And, yeah, it's, it's great to be back anyway. Yes, it is. And, and, and what does it say on your shirt? It's just a little bit cut off there. Oh, gee. Oh, Og Camp. It? It's an event. I, hang on. Oh, sure. Okay, there you go. Oh, right. Og is in Vorbis and the rest. That's the one, yeah. That's the one. As in Vorbis, um, yeah. Yeah. So our guest today is Miguel Ducasa, who we've both talked to in the past, I think. And um, Yeah. And uh, and of. Uh, He's famous and great, and um, I'd, I'd, I'd want to tarry more, except I just want to get him on the show. So we're off to a late yeah. start. So mm-hmm. um, uh, Miguel is, um, you know, f- famous for uh, Gnome, uh, Mono, uh, Xamarin, um, uh, working on and off for, for Microsoft, um, you know, founded the .NET Foundation as sort of an an open source embrasure of of um, of .NET and other things Microsoft are doing. I think he's one of the greatest ambassadors that Microsoft has ever had, as well as Linux and the other thing he's things he's founded. So, um, uh, Doc is muted. The back channel is saying, "Am I? Mm. I, can I, hear you. I can hear you." Okay, so the back channel doesn't know what it's talking about. Okay, great. So, <laughs> Miguel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Doc. How's it going? Terry, it's great to be Terry, here. You're in, there's an office you call messy, but isn't. I, <laughs> well, my, uh, yeah, no, it is. Very, <laughs> you, you don't get to see the the, the back. Where, uh, where do you? Where where are you, roughly speaking? Are you? I am in. in I am uh, in Boston. You're in Boston. Excellent. Yes. I'm, yes. I I'm, I miss Boston. If I had a, one place I I could choose out of all the places I have lived, that would be my first choice. It doesn't, oh, suck okay. being, it doesn't suck being in Santa Barbara or in Bloomington, Indiana, which is where I am now. Um, okay. I'm stationed here for a couple of years, um, but it's, uh, but, it, but it's great to have you on. Um, so we could go into a couple of things. One is I'd, I'd like to visit, um, mm-hmm. you, you were in and out of Microsoft. You left recently. I know there's a lot you can't talk about. What can you talk about? Well, uh, I did go, uh, you know, I, I've only been at Microsoft once. Um, I, they acquired our company uh, in 2016, and I stayed up until March 
And at the beginning, uh, I kept doing the job that I was doing before, which was working on Xamarin, MobileDevelopertools.net. It was a very exciting time. And the last couple of years, I spent them working on AI and a bunch of things that are not public yet, so I can't really discuss. But, but you know, I was lucky to be at Microsoft during this period where uh, Satya Nadella was driving driving a major cultural uh, uh, change at the company, and uh, it was fascinating to watch. Uh, it was fascinating to watch. Uh, how do you steer a company of that size uh, towards new businesses and also new principles? So, you know, I, I live in awe and uh, I left in awe. I was impressed with what they were doing. Uh, but, uh, you know, I wanted to do my own thing and also, you know, uh, take a big break. Uh, I've been working since I was 17 years old and and I need a, a big break and spend some time with the family and kids. So, you know, I'll do something soon. Uh, not, you know, not fully decided yet, but, but uh, you know, there, were, there was a great time at Microsoft. I had fun and, uh, and it was a little bit difficult to leave, but I wanted my, my, my big break. Excellent. It's not, you deserve a break and we, we wait to, to see, you know, what, what comes next. That would be interesting. Um, so Miguel, I, I'm, I'm interested in, you've been involved with open source and free software for a very long time and it's changed a lot in that time. And I'm curious, um, how you think today's kind of open source world is different from, uh, from how it started or, or how do you see it now? The kind of big picture has open source really changed that much? Uh, well, I think, you know, when we started, or at least when I joined the project, and I was not even uh, some of the, you know, I wasn't even on the early patch, right? I, I kind of joined in 1992, and this had already been going for a while. Um, uh, you know, Richard Stallman had launched, uh, you know, this organized effort to build a OS from, from scratch. But I think that the, the big difference is that back in the day, uh, we had found... Uh, we kind of had found uh, uh, a cause and uh, there was both a lot of promise. There was this amazing feeling of collaboration. And, and I like to describe Linux probably as the, as, as the first and probably biggest success of the internet and what humans together can achieve. And so there was this very powerful uh, feeling uh a sense of duty, I would say, or at least I, and I feel a lot of people felt that way about promoting uh, open source, about trying to change existing business models, about trying to improve our industry. So uh, that level of excitement, uh, well, some of it still permeates, I think is very different now. I think that today we, we understand it. We sort of take it for granted. We, uh, you know, it's very clinical, right? <laughs> uh, it's very clinical, very clean. We know what it is, and uh, and uh, it has changed. Um, it has changed, and I think it's great. Uh, it's been embraced by everybody, right? I mean, when Google first embraced Linux, right? I remember when Google launched, and uh, it was a great search engine. And they had a dedicated Google search for Linux subjects. I don't know if you remember this, but they had a dedicated Google world just for Linux topics. Uh, it felt like a major uh, endorsement, uh, you know, having a company that knew what was happening and uh, and kind of acknowledged the existence of open source and, and made it front and center. And now, you know, now everybody does it. If you're not doing Linux or open source, you're doing something very wrong or or, you know, you probably don't know how to operate a phone. So, you know, it has changed a lot. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, purely from a nostalgia point of view, I would love to get back that feeling and excitement that we had back in that time uh, around changing the world. And I think that, you know, newer generations are definitely doing things like that in new spaces like, I think AI is, is full of those places uh, and, and, and people excited about the mission. Sadly, <laughs> I think that the crypto world <laughs> is uh, mm -hmm. the cryptocurrency world is, uh, is, has that level of excitement. Although I think that fundamentally uh, it is a broken system. 
right? But uh, so yeah, I think it has changed a lot. I, 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 it has changed tremendously, and uh, and I think it's for the better. So it's very mature now. We we know what it is. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, so you said was it crypto? You said you, oh, cryptocurrency and all that kind of stuff. You think is fundamentally broken? Is that right? Is that what you said? So I'm interested to, yes. to hear why. <laughs> Okay, that's interesting. Well, so, why, 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 why do you think that? The, I mean, I think, I think that the popularity of cryptocurrencies comes from having a foot in multiple uh, in multiple worlds, and uh, uh, you know, it's a piece of technology, it's a piece of finance, it's a piece of ideology, and uh, if you're not if you're not very well versed in all these things, it's it's easy to take other people's uh, uh, pitches for granted. And, and I think that's what's happening with cryptocurrencies. It's, it's a complicated space with a bunch of interesting bumper sticker slogans that are easy to assimilate, but it's, it's fundamentally unsound. And let me explain to you what I think by it's unsound. Uh, cryptocurrencies at the end of the day are what finance people called a private currency. Um, and a way of thinking about this is when you go to a casino, you don't really use your dollars, right? You exchange your dollars at the casino for uh, their tokens. And then you use those tokens inside. And then at the end of the day, you go and exchange whatever tokens you have left for your dollars and you leave the place, right? So the cryptocurrencies have been sold on all kinds of grounds uh, and... Uh, you know, they'll solve inflation. They'll, they're, uh, you know, there's a, it's a bet against inflation. It's a sovereign currency. Uh, you know, no more money can be printed, that sort of thing. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a private currency, very much like a casino one. And it is still bound by the external currencies, right? So at some point, you need to cash out out of this world. And at some point, you do need to cash in, uh, into this thing. So I think that the problem is that most people really don't have a good sense for what the role of money is, the role of currency, why states print or do not print money. Uh, also, I don't think that, I mean, most people think that taxes are really what are funding the federal government. And uh, uh, so there's a bunch of disconnects like that. And, and I think that a lot of people have fell for this. Um, and then I think that that was an initial wave. And then there was a secondary wave where all of these uh, were a lot of creative uses of cryptocurrencies. Uh, uh, you know, they gamified Ponzi's and, uh, you know, they, they, they made it look like you could make money easily, right? So this second wave, I think, was incredibly toxic and incredibly damaging for a lot of people because... A lot of people bought into this thing as if it was a real investment asset. Um, so, you know, my issue really comes down to, to a lot of people not understanding it. At the end of the day, it is a private currency system. And, uh, and no matter what you do, come April 15, right? <laughs> On April 15, you got to do, you got to turn whatever barter you did in the street, <laughs> Uh, financial transactions, foreign transactions, investments in foreign banks or at home into U.S. dollars to pay your taxes, right? And uh, I don't think that a lot of people realize the nature of money and, and they've been kind of uh, uh, tricked into believing cryptocurrencies. So anyways, and it's a shame that it, you know, the, brilliant, the most brilliant minds and young people got kind of sucked into this um, when there are so many other interesting problems to solve in the world. Oh boy, this is this topic alone <laughs> is, is good for an entire mm. show. I, and I love that metaphor. I, I mean, I've I've heard the casino comparison before because you're taking chances, right? That that was kind of the casino thing. Mm -hmm. but really, a great metaphor that you're you're um, it is a private currency. I'm not, and it, and a way it is. It's it's certainly private to whatever cryptocurrency you're talking about, whether it's bitch, uh, uh, mm -hmm. Bitcoin or um, Ethereum, or any of the lesser ones. Um, and private companies have emerged to more or less run your life through these things. And I, I, we could go further into that or into some other adjacent topic, but um, 
First, I need to let people know that uh, this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla. IRL is a show for people who build AI and people who develop tech policies. It's hosted by Bridget Todd, and this season, IRL looks at AI in real life, looking at things like who can AI help, who can it harm. Uh, it features uh, conversations with people who are working to build more trustworthy AI. For example, there's an episode about how our world is mapped with AI, how the data that's missing from those maps tells as much of a story as the maps themselves. You hear about all the people who are working to fill those gaps and take control of the data. There's another episode about gig workers who depend on apps for their livelihood. That one looks at how they're pushing back against algorithms that control how much they get paid and seeking new ways to gain power over data uh, to create better working conditions for political junkies. There are episodes about the role that AI plays when it comes to the spread of misinformation and hate speech around elections, which is a huge concern for democracies around the world. Um, you know, the one about gig workers is interesting to me because um, in a way I'm one of those. <laughs> and uh, But the, the interesting thing to me about it is the algorithms where these are impenetrable in some ways. And can you open the source of algorithms in a way? Can you look at them? In most cases, we cannot. And even if we can, we don't know what the effects of them are. You know, when you write code, you kind of know what the effects are going to be. Algorithms have all these secondary, tertiary, and quaternary effects that that fan out and you don't know what's going to happen. So that's an interesting topic. So search for IRL in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. My thanks to IRL for their support. So Michael, you want to, you want to go any further on, on, on this one or shall we get to some of the other, the, the, on, on the, the crypto one? I mean, Blew my mind with that one. I think our, our own back channel sort of in a similar way. It's kind of, wait a minute, that's an obvious metaphor, but I hadn't caught it before. Maybe because it's, uh, people, it kind, of, it kind of travels as public, but it's really, it's private. I think that's the, everybody wants to decentralize, right? It looks like, hey, it's, we're decentralizing. We're putting on a blockchain. Everybody keeps part of the database here. It's a duplicated beta database. We all have possession of some of that. Um, and therefore it's ours, but instead it's actually our are being used by something that's inherently private. And I think that this is interesting, right? Because what you're describing is essentially, we get so caught up on the mechanics, right? And people develop so much expertise on the how this thing works, then the, you know, the mechanics of, you know, the consensus algorithms and who is doing and the double chain and the speed and, and the energy consumption, they get caught up on all of these things. And uh, it is, uh, it is almost like becoming an expert at a sport, right? And memorizing the, you know, every, uh, every element of a, of a baseball player. And, you know, I don't know what they're called, but they're people that recite, uh, you know, games and they know exactly uh, what transpired. So I think that a lot of passion is spent into this. And at some point, the fundamental problem is that there's a disconnect with the fundamental economics of it. Uh, and by the time that, that you get to understand this thing, you are so bought into this lifestyle and so bought into the mechanics and the knowledge that you've gained that you try to find a justification or try to find why this makes sense. And, and I think that that is where it breaks. Um, and I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I remember asking my dad, uh, where does money come from? And he gave me, he gave me some, something about, well, it's gold and, you know, every dollar is backed by some gold. And, uh, and I was never satisfied with the answer, right? And, but why is it gold? And if we mine more gold, do we have more money? Right? Um, so I lived for, I would say most of my adult life not really understanding why money was valuable. And I've listened to podcasts. I listened to the, you know, the American life one on money. I was like, okay, I, I get it, but I don't quite get it. And I think it was some about 10 years ago or so, or maybe eight years or so. Uh, I found this blog, I believe it was called New Economic Perspectives. I, I'm not sure, but it was essentially a bunch of folks that were explaining where money comes from and explains why there's value in money and why do we seek money. And, uh, 
and the theory as, as uh, you know and, and the theory that explains how this system works is very interesting because once because it's not difficult to understand that is the interesting piece it has a couple of uh you know first principles where they describe our economic system and once you understand that and it can be explained in a couple of hours uh, or you know you, you can grab a book and, uh, and and read it in a couple of days um, you a lot of this you know economic thinking unlocks right so the magic or you know this this magic this almost impenetrable thing that my dad couldn't explain uh, you know 40 years ago when I was a kid uh, becomes very easy to explain. It's called modern monetary theory is the, is the thing. And, uh, you know, my dad is a physicist, right? So, so I always thought of my dad as the smartest guy uh, in the world. And, and when it came to money, he didn't really knew what it was. And it would take me about 30 or 40 years to, to eventually discover uh, where it came from. And I wish that other people had that same, uh, you know, that same epiphany that I had, you know, seven or so years ago. This discussion reminds me of a, um, a friend of mine once described, explained quantitative easing to me by saying that all money is imaginary and now they've imagined uh -huh. some more. Uh, basically, yeah, yeah. is how quantitative easing works, <laughs> essentially. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, while we're talking about, I, I know people mm -hmm. in, the, in the IRC are, are, are mad about blockchain and they want to talk about that. It's, it's a bit of a drinking game they have going on when we mention blockchain, so um, mm -hmm. I, I'll try not to mention it too much. But, but the technical side of it, so a few people have mentioned in there things like um, Web3, which I think you have some feelings about. So what do you think about Web3 and using this kind of blockchain technology for something different? Well, I am, I am definitely, I am definitely on the camp. I think that once they realized that this currency really didn't fly, they needed to find ways of make it useful. And I think that they're trying all kinds of things. And uh, uh, I, I have yet to see anything that the blockchain can do. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that the value uses for something like the blockchain are probably 1% of what is being advertised. So it's almost like a statistical error. And uh, But they've put a lot of money into this. There's a lot of money at stake here. There's investments, there's people savings, there's a lot of people that have horses in the race. And, uh, and they're trying to find a way for more people to put in money. And, and sadly, uh, you know, without getting into the details and, and the specifics, this entire cryptocurrency ecosystem, right? And again, I'm, I'm going to paint with a very thick brush is essentially technoponzies, right? And uh, what you do need is you do need to get more people uh, getting more of these uh, cryptocurrencies and putting more money uh, behind this so you can get out. Um, so Web3, uh, for everything that I've seen on Web3 and every pitch that I tried to listen to, you know, they're trying desperately to give it a purpose to something. You know, it's a solution looking for a problem. Um, and uh, I, I, I have yet to see anything, anything in this space that doesn't meet that criteria. Um, so... And I think that there's just a ton of vested interest in trying to make it happen. And I don't think it's going to happen, right? Eventually, we're going to run out of people uh, with disposable income or people that can be tricked into, into this. And, uh, and uh, you know, a lot of people are going to get harmed on, on the process. And I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I don't like this, <laughs> right? I don't like this. Yeah, I, I have mean, a... Go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dan. Dan. Go on. I didn't mean no, to no, you, you go, go ahead. No. no, no, you carry on because you're, there's a great thread. Uh, I have a slight I, pivot, but yeah. No, no problem. I was just going to mention that I, I was reading because I knew we might talk about Web3. I've got to be honest, I didn't know much about it. So I did some reading up earlier and I was reading a great, There's a, I'll, I'll find the link and put it in the chat for people. There's a really great mm -hmm. essay by Mo, um, Moxie, Moxie Marlinspike, who does Signal and is a great uh, cryptographer and so on um about web3 and why it's essentially a fallacy a lot of what it claims so the decentralization which is the big thing they, that they all claim kind of falls apart when you realize that there's only two companies that provide the services to read the uh, ethereum blockchain that they're using you can do it mm -hmm. yourself but his argument is people don't want to run their own servers 
you know, end users do not want to run their own servers. They're not going to do that. And you can't do what you need to do on a device like a phone. You need a server. So you're going to go to a company to get that service, which is one of, at the moment, two companies. Um, so it, it, I'll, I'll put the link in. Just really interesting on, on the, why the whole Web3 thing kind of feels like a bit of a house of cards. Oh, absolutely. I'm definitely on that, on that camp. Uh, and uh, I don't know if people know this, but there's a great blog called Web3 is Going Great. I believe that's the name <laughs> by Molly White. She's based in Boston. I've never met her, but uh, uh, the, the website is very good looking and uh, she keeps documenting <laughs> every one of these things, uh, every one of these promises uh, when they blow up or they're unfulfilled. So it's a great uh, place to catch up on some of these things. But again, I've been trying to look at this as maybe there is something, right? I'm a technologist. Uh, I love technology. I, you know, every time there's a new piece of hardware, I try to get it. I try to mess around with it. Uh, you know, my messy desk on the back is a bunch of Raspberry Pis. Uh, even if I'm not a, a, a an electronics guy, I like to to find out about these things. And and I'm afraid that the Web three stuff. You know, I've I've looked at it. I've, I've uh, spent some time on it. Uh, it's time I'm never gonna get back. Sadly. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's not much there. And I think that at this point, we're reached the point where it is being driven with people with strong economic incentives to get more people to put in money so they can get it out. So I think that this qualifies very much as a, as a, uh, uh, very well-funded scam. Wow. Okay, so I have a... <laughs> on that note. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I think it's... <laughs> there's a pull quote for the show. <laughs> um, I, here's a, a slight pivot, and it's an interesting <laughs> thing for me. It, I was recalling... I, I was in college in the late 1960s, um, which was interesting for lots of things. The civil rights era, um, anti-war, all that stuff. I was very involved in that. Um, I came out of tech in a way because I was a ham radio operator, you know, but, uh, which is the closest you could get back in those days. But the, but I, in the summer I sold ice cream from an ice cream truck and I had a coin changer on my belt. Everything was a quarter or less that I sold. Mm -hmm. Um, and in 19, starting in 1964, the U S went from, um, all the money, the, the paper money said, um, payable to the bearer on in silver on demand. It was backed by silver, like yep. your dad was talking about. You know, yeah, you, mined, uh -huh. you mined money, and it was convertible. But if you looked at at the side, there's a slot in the in the change thing, so you could see the quarters, and they were like mostly silver the first year, sixty five that I did it, sixty five, sixty six, sixty six through sixty eight, and they were mostly silver for dimes and quarters, and they were like half, and then like very few, and I kept all the silver ones. And actually, like, okay. <laughs> exchanged them for, for, you know, and, and I gave them to my parents now they, it, and as a gift for their anniversary or something like that. Uh, and unfortunately, later our house is raided and it was stolen, but, but the, which is sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, it wasn't so much raided. There's just somebody broke in and, and looked where something would likely be hidden and found it there. But here's what I went through at the time mentally, which is that, now they were Federal Reserve notes. I don't even know what it says in our money now. But, it's a but trust went from the metal to the government. We started to trust uh -huh. the bigness of the government. And where I want to pivot there is that only governments can make fiat currency. And I'm wondering, uh -huh. and, and they, even though they're looking to get into the blockchain-based kind now, they all, every government, has uh, substantial government is all looking at this and wanting to more or less step in front of it. And I've talked to friends at banks and other places like that that are very familiar with this. So there's a name for it. Um, my wife is actually much more up on this kind of stuff than I am. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of wish she was on it. But here's, it still says for the reserve note on cash. Yeah, there it goes. <laughs> and our producer is, is telling us in the back channel, yep, it still says that. Um, the... But we're having, we now have a similar trust in, in big companies. You know, you and I, mm -hmm. I don't think Dan, um, are looking at each other through, um, through Apple devices. I know Ant is looking through a Windows device. Um, 
uh, these are run by big companies, right? And um, I think Dan is probably <laughs> the one orthodox among us looking at us through, through a, uh, a Linux device. But, I mean, and they all still work. This great. Dan's nodding. Um, that's cool. He gets the award. Um, but we need these big companies for a lot of things. I mean, I think, the, 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 and I, you've written and talked a bit about this, and I think when you worked on Mono and your early embrasure of, of C Sharp, I mean, everybody's busy, and the Linux world's busy crapping all over Microsoft, and you looked at what they were doing and said, well, hey, C Sharp's kind of cool. I remember this. You yeah. worked on Mono to kind of embrace all that, and, uh, um, and that was... Um, I think you recognized, and and we all recognize, at least at, a, at an intuitive level, that you kind of, you know, you need the big companies. And now clouds have come along, right? Every, everybody's relying on AWS. You know, my my, my server, um, Searles.com, um, uh, has been around since 1995. It used to be under my desk. Um, yes. Then later it was in a rack, literally a rack. A, it was a physical thing in a, in a rack at Rackspace because Rackspace was an early sponsor of Linux Journal and uh, two Linux Journal women married two Rackspace founders, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know? I did not know that. No. Yeah. Funny thing about Linux Journal is that this is a side point is that um, nearly 100% of our readers were male and 100% of our our, our our executive staff is female. Our, our managing editor, all of it is pretty funny. But I anyway. subscribed to that magazine on day one. I I probably, oh, I don't have, I left it in Mexico, but uh, a friend kept, I hope he still has it, kept all my books. So I hope he still has my Linux magazine number I, one. I have a stack of them in Santa Barbara and I was looking at recently. I think it's a treasure. And, um, but, but where, where I'm going with this is you know, now Searles.com is in, mm-hmm. it's not at AWS, but it's at, it's at a big company server, mm-hmm. right? And there, and my mail is handled by Rackspace as well. You know, Searles.com mm-hmm. mail uh, all goes through their spam filter because we need them to filter the spam. Yes. So most people use Google for that. Um, you know, search engines, you know, have to be huge, right? We need these, these are utilities in a way, but utilities are closed in some, some ways as well. Um, but there are virtues to that in a way. The mm-hmm. and you put, you wrote about this and have talked about it. I think that the fact that Apple from the start has worked on you know it's not just that they positioned around privacy for marketing purposes. It's that their customers are human beings. <laughs> they're they're mm-hmm. not a business company, especially they're not a they don't do much B two B, even though they sell right. iPads by the zillions for point of sale and stuff like that. They're not a B two B company. They're they're a they just deal with people for the most part. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we as customers pay them a lot of money and they're, we care about privacy. They care about privacy. So tell, tell us more about where your thinking is on that. And can we ever move past it? Do we want to move fast past it? Well, I mean, the, you know, I, I, I think uh, I, I, you just a great quote and I'm going to let you use it later. Uh, I don't want to steal it, but I think that uh, uh, one thing that bothers me about these big companies is that, I would say that today I happen to like what the Apple leadership is doing in terms of preserving privacy, right? So I think they're doing great. But, you know, companies go through, uh, you know, executives change, uh, the market changes, uh, the governments change, legislation changes, and the companies morph as a result, right? As the system changes, the company and their behavior changes. And uh, right now I'm very happy with... uh, you know, I'm very happy with Apple. I, you know, I worked at Microsoft and I was close enough to, um, you know, the executive sort of level that I'm very happy and confident with Microsoft. But, you know, things can change and, and they can turn for the worst. So I think that the fear is that uh, I would like to live in a world where, you know, we didn't depend on individuals or the current market conditions to get the right outcomes and, uh I believe that this is a place where uh, uh, there's two components, right? One would be, you know, kind of the big hammer would be to have regulation. Uh, and I know a lot of people don't like regulation, but, you know, having some sort of regulation that controls uh, these big companies or even small and medium companies. And the other one is, you know, we keep talking about, the, you know, capitalist systems 
having this duty to shareholders, right? That their sole objective is to maximize shareholder value. And there's some, you know, debate over whether it's uh, an absolute or not and, and whether that's the intent. But I think that in addition to having this, uh, this metric, uh, that companies should have a social mission or should have a, uh, uh, you know, a duty to fulfill and uh, that they are also rated on that capacity. Sadly, the one, you know, the one note that we have to control the behavior of a company is money. So I don't know how to turn social responsibility into a knob, right? Um, whether that's, you know, lower taxes, if you do the right thing, we'll lower your taxes, or if you do the wrong thing, we'll increase your taxes, or maybe that's a penalty. But, uh, you know, uh, I am happy with some big companies uh, doing certain things and, uh, and I'm not happy with other big companies doing things that I, I think should be rectified. Um, and some companies have a mix, right? Some companies are good in some ways and bad in others. Um, so I wish we didn't have to depend on the goodwill, on the management and the way the wind blows. Uh, so regulation, it seems like Europe is going to pass some uh, interesting regulation, uh, both for media companies and uh, and digital marketplaces. I happen to think that Apple is doing a great job, but uh, the European Union is probably going to start to regulate that space as well. Um, I'm not convinced it's the right thing, but, you know, it kind of goes along those lines of uh, regulation to ensure that companies uh, have a long-term... It's a long-term net good for society. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting, and we're sharing this on the back channel. Um, Steve Jobs went out of his way to say he didn't care about shareholders, <laughs> you know, and and that, uh, you know, he was working for the customers, and he was working for himself. He was an art guy. He did art. That's what he was about. And and I think Apple's success to some degree is dependent on that. I think the ghost of Steve Jobs and his taste I mean, what he said about Microsoft is a really interesting thing. He was interviewed once by Robert S. Cringely, and uh -huh. in the interview, he leaned back and he was. They asked him what about Microsoft, and he was on unfriendly terms at that time with Microsoft. He later got more friendly again, but because uh, he and Bill actually liked each other, I think, as human beings. But he <laughs> he leaned back and he said, in four words, it was perfect. He looked like Satan when he said it. He said, "They have no taste," and <laughs> I thought that was. Just a wickedly right-on comment at that time, and may still be true. I think it's just—it's really where they came from, you know. And I think, I think that uh, you know the DNA of a company matters to some degree. You know, the the questions you never ask are the ones that the dead guy on the wall of the lobby would already had the answer for. You know, and I know with yeah. uh, I talked about that once with the the guy who was the CEO, Lee Scott of Walmart, who said that. Um, that uh, Sam Walton still ran Walmart. That Sa Sam Walton never wanted to spend more than one percent of their in of their uh, bottom line or whatever it was on advertising. Mm -hmm. They just weren't going to do it, and they never did. You know. Yeah. But go ahead. And, and I, what what you're saying to me, uh, one of the most uh, you know, uh, there's this great book called I think it's called uh, Thinking in Systems, and uh, and uh, it helped me change the way that I see at some of these problems, right? Which uh, you know, in the particular case of what you say on on Steve Jobs commenting on Microsoft and they have no taste is, uh, is not only a matter of, you know, hiring a couple of people to get some taste or trying to appoint somebody, right? Um, I think that what Apple has is they've been nurturing a particular um, way of thinking, a particular person that they hire, a particular kind of people that care about certain things, and they've built up this stock, right? So. So I don't know if it's DNA more than they have a stock of people that care about this thing. And this is what this book talks about, right? How do you, how do you uh, manage stocks of things? And in this case, it's people, talent, and opinions, right? And, uh, and Apple has built up this stock of people that care about these particular things, right? And not everybody cares about the same, but in general strokes, that's what they have hired. And, uh, and you can't just sprinkle you know, a handful of, of folks on this and, and completely change the company, right, in a different direction. 
this is what, what makes me, uh, you know, this is what to me is so exciting about such a sculptural direction, right? He's had to, you know, in this, in this model of stocks that uh, this book talks about, you know, he's turned off the faucet of certain behaviors and turned on the faucet of other behaviors, right? He's trying to reshape the company and it takes a very long time to make these changes. Uh, kind of like moving a very, very large boat on the ocean, right? You, you can't stop that easily. You can't turn it quickly. Uh, and it takes time. Now, he's not going in the, in the direction of competing with Apple, right? For user experience, but you know, he's changing it in ways that, that I think are net positives for, for, uh, for the world and for the company. But yeah, I think, uh, Apple is unbeatable and it's not just because, you know, they came up with a great design for the, for the notch on the phone is they just have a stock of people that care about this at a fundamental level. So, you know, today we saw it with the notch and we'll saw it with the braided band or whatever it is, but it's, it, it, these are people that think about this uh, day in and day out. And, and it's a, and it's an advantage that they're going to have for, for a very long time. Anyways, I'm not even sure how we ended up here, but uh, you know, I'm excited about this. <laughs> I'm excited about this, uh, this way of thinking about, companies and systems and what do you prioritize and what do you encourage? What does the system make easy and what does the system make difficult? Right. And, uh, you know, we see it right now, actually with Twitter, right? The, if, if the leaks from the whistleblower are right, right. Uh, and I, I, you know, I have no reason to doubt it is that the system encouraged certain behaviors, uh, from the management team that were not necessarily the same ones that, a security professional cared about, right? And unless you make a systemic change, uh, you're not going to get the results that you want. So anyways, I, I'm just talking about that book. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just very interesting. Oh my gosh. I, I, there was a, in the same way Apple is about art, the system of Microsoft, I think, and I don't know if you want to go into this. We may need to have a different, a, se a second show for this. Um, but I'm remembering, I wrote a book for Microsoft once. Uh, that was that was about Web TV back in the 90s when they bought Web TV. And yeah. and everybody thought the TV was going to eat the web rather than the other way around, which is exactly what happened. And I said that, that was going to happen. It was going to be the other mm -hmm. way around. And the guy that worked at, I worked with at Microsoft said, he said, watch this, Microsoft, nobody at Microsoft can't go a paragraph without saying the word smart, that it was all about smart. And, and it was all about more, what he called more school, that, that they, they invented the uh -huh. term campus, that, you know, that you had okay. a campus and you were graded on a curve and you got grades and things like that. And, um, you know, it was started by two smart guys that had perfect SAT scores, you know? And, and, uh -huh. and that's what kind of what it was about. I don't know if you want to go into that or not, because I know Dan has a question queued up and I have to help pay for the show by letting everybody know that this go episode of Floss Weekly, <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Your IT team needs the skills and knowledge to ensure that your business is a success. And with IT Pro TV, more than 80% of users who start a video actually finish it. IG Pro TV is engaging and your team will enjoy learning on their platform. Give your team the tools they need to make your business thrive. Courses are entertaining. They're binge worthy, keeping your team interested, invested in learning. The tech industry is evolving, changing rapidly, and your team needs to be trained today when a new software release, system upgrade, or cyber threat faces your business. IG Pro TV offers the training and perspective of those disruptions in days if not ours. So why is IT Pro TV right for your business? Well, get all training and certifications for your team done all in one place. IT Pro TV has every vendor and skill you need for your IT team training. They produce Microsoft IT training, Cisco training, Linux training, Apple training, security cloud, and much more. More than 5,800 hours worth ranging from technical skills to compliance to soft skills. You can do so much more with an IT Pro TV business plan. Track your team's results, manage your seats, assign unassigned team members, access monthly usage reports, see metrics like logins, viewing time, tracks completed, and more. Easily manage teams, manage subsets of users or teams by providing them with customized assignments, monitoring progress and reporting on usage of the platform. Assignments can be full courses and or individual episodes within courses, Advanced reporting, get immediate insight into your team's 
viewing patterns and progress over any period of time with visual reports. And don't forget that IT Pro TV has individual plans too. Give your team the IT development platform they need to level up their skills while enjoying the journey. For teams of two to 1,000, volume discounts start at five seats. Go to itpro.tv slash twit. Make sure to mention twit30 for your IT Pro TV account executive to get 30% off or more on a business plan. Okay, Dan, take it. <laughs> yeah, okay, no worries. Uh, thanks, Doc. Yeah, so I wanted to, I know we've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but I want to talk a bit about um, security and, and distribution models for software and so on. It sounds really boring mm-hmm. when I say that, but hopefully it won't be that boring. Um, I was reading your blog about... Um, uh, about the Epic Games uh, versus Apple, uh, you know, uh, legal case and all that stuff, which I think is still ongoing at the moment, still rumbling on, um, about app stores and control of app stores and stuff. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in my kind of Linuxy world will talk about the fact that the app store is just like our old repositories used to be, you know, with your package manager and all the rest of it. Um, but I suppose there is a question in here, I promise. Um, but but um, I suppose that the question is, is, do you think having one company or one entity in control of what um, what software is allowed to run on a system, does that limit um, creativity in some way or, or um, you know, that kind of hacker culture that we, we, we know of? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it does limit the innovation. It limits the things that you can put in. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, there is no question that it does limit it. Though my view, in particular with the iPhone and Android, is that we we are not now asking, you know, we're, well, we're not asking. The reality is that the globe, right, humanity now is putting all of their information, private information into these devices. And uh, and it is imperative that we protect the integrity of these devices. Um, and, uh, you know, we have our, our bank account information. We, you know, some people have affairs that they're, you know, keeping from other folks. There have business transactions, you know, uh, deals. Uh, you know, insider information and everybody's carrying one of these things. So while I understand that you might not be able to run, uh, for example, a simulator for the Commodore 64 with some ROMs that you downloaded from the internet uh, on the device. And it is a shame, right? The the good news is that you can get yourself uh, a device that can do that, right? If you really want to do this thing, you can get a PC or a Mac or whatever, or a Linux machine and get it. So I think that this is a case where the where we're protecting uh, these devices that almost every human on this planet has is more important than the handful of things that are not there, right? Or the innovation that we're missing out. The other component is that uh, you know hacks are essentially a function of uh, you know how many hacks, how good the hacks are. Uh, and what the impact is, it's a function of the market size. And, uh, you know, back in, you know, 1998, we used to say, hey, Linux has no viruses. Linux has no bugs, right? And we used to think that we were just very secure, right? But, but it turns out that it was a function of the market. It was a function of what was the, you know, the incentives, right? If you hack a Linux machine, you probably got nothing but access to an empty HTTP server. Uh, now these days, finding uh, a remote kernel exploit for a Linux machine, oof, you know, uh, can get you access to millions of dollars, right? So the incentives are much higher. So I think that, well, there is certainly a downside for me as a software developer, right? I have all my hacks and uh, and I would like to run those uh, all the time. In fact, I have an app, right, that Apple will not allow on the App Store and I run it locally. Oh, and right now it's not even displaying. Oh, I haven't enabled developer mode on my freshly installed operating system, but I have this little app. Usually before yesterday, when I updated, this was my COVID graphs app. And it's an app to just to keep an eye on the, uh, the, on COVID in Massachusetts. And you can change it. You can, but I built it for my own use. 
uh, Apple does not allow COVID apps into the store to avoid having to police information. So I picked my data source. I, you know, I have a script that runs every night, updates it and updates my watch. So every day I can see <laughs> how COVID is doing here. Right. But uh, so, yes, it limits. You know, I wish I could share this with more people, you know, the source on GitHub if you want to get it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I wish it was accessible to more people. But I think it is the right call um, because ultimately you are exposing at this point is billions of people to this thing. So you need to, uh, you know, it is one of those things where the the benefit for society as a whole is more important than a handful of us wanted to run our personal COVID app on the, on the phone. So now that said, uh, like I mentioned, the European Union is going to get uh, a heavy hammer uh, to both Google and Apple. And uh, I personally am very scared for this future uh, because despite all the flaws that these stores have today and the hacks that still manage to make it, uh, what we're going to see is a lot of vulnerable people are going to be targeted by the most efficient scamming machine uh, uh, humanity has ever seen, right? Uh, you know, borders and the internet make hacking from a different country very viable, very low risk with a really high payout. So uh, I think that the European legislation that I have no question will happen uh, will mark the end of these phones as relatively safe devices. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm trying to relish this last few months <laughs> of, uh, mm -hmm. of a stable system uh, for myself and my family, right? I mean, I, I think I'm paranoid enough. I am uh, securely conscious enough that I don't do many things that uh, my family members do. And uh, I think that they will be the first ones that get hit, uh, you know, people that are not security people and uh, they will be scammed hard. So that's my concern. That's my thing with the Apple store. I do not like the wall garden. I, I just had an app. I submitted it to Apple. They rejected me over so many little things. I was like, Jesus Christ, just let me get it in. Right. It's finally approved. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was frustrating. But at the end of the day, this this funnel shrinking, right? What they're doing is millions of people submit apps and this funnel, this process, this thing kind of uh, weeds out a lot of problems. It doesn't weed out everything, but it, it, it reduces the, the, the number of potential attacker of, or people that potentially can scam you. So, um, so I do appreciate it. Even if I, you know, I'll be the first to complain about app review, right? Uh, those guys are like bouncers in a club. I hate those guys, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody in the history of humanity has ever uh, can say, you know, one nice thing about a bouncer at a club. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that's what they are. Uh, but they do help keep uh, the ecosystem safe. And, and it's an incredibly juicy market. So anyways, um, on the one hand, I think the hacker in me is happy for the EU legislation. The citizen in me is, uh, is already is mourning preemptively uh, the hell that is going to be unleashed on us. So, you know, some good, some mm -hmm. bad. So just, just for anyone who, who, who doesn't know, because I had a look at this earlier, uh, the EU's um, I can't remember the actual name. It's DMA. Is the is the, is the digital the, markets? Yeah, I think it's digital yeah. markets something. It's digital markets right. act, something like that. Yeah. 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 So this is a, a a ruin that came out of the EU in March, I think, of this year, and uh, they're going to basically force companies like Apple and um and and Google and others to open up their um their their app stores and uh, other things to out third-party developers basically so so basically i think what you were saying was remove the the bouncer if you like in that analogy and just let anybody right. in, open the door and let anybody in and um yeah and i suppose the the worry is that you know while we like to believe that everybody's above board and has good intentions there are certainly people who don't and and having no security or having nobody on the door checking that 
could be could be an issue. But on, on the other on the other argument, I suppose there's the argument that it's market forces as well. Will that leave it more open to 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 this kind of market force of demand and you know popularity and so on? The problem with the problem with security is that um, you know it's not like you have a. I mean, the problem is that there's really no market force here, right? The the once this is open, right? You're, all you gotta do is trick grandma or a kid. Hey, you know we have this exclusive game. Wanna try it out? And uh, they're gonna try it out. And what do you know? Comes with a hack inside. And the you know Google and Apple will have absolutely no visibility into what this is, into what got sideloaded, into what got installed, how much of the system got hacked, um, and uh, and. Uh, so, so that's my fear, right? They're going to trick a lot of people into installing uh, dubious software, <laughs> and uh, they're going to exploit it. So, but again, you know, I'm warning it preemptively because I think it's a done deal. I don't think anything is going to stop it. So, it is going to happen, and um, so I guess we just got to be prepared to teach our families about uh, about these things. Mm-hmm. It, it it's interesting to me that I mean you're you're doing a good job of looking like two layers into things. Um, and, you know, in a similar, in a similar way to what you were saying earlier about, um, about cryptocurrencies that they're inherently private. There's what, what they're missing, uh, what the EU, um, uh, lawmakers are missing is that, um, these in fact are private markets <laughs> run by, <laughs> By companies, I mean that's that's another. It's similar in some ways because it isn't the open marketplace. It's two really very right. um, contained um, data stores, and it, it is kind of like saying, ignoring the fact that this is a feudal system. You know, they, they are lords of a domain. We're all serfs in there. We can complain about that if we like, but that's the status quo. And by mm-hmm. saying, "No, you're going to have to let anybody do any whatever they want inside your feudal system," is is an issue. I, I had a different issue with um, both the GDPR, which I really was enthusiastically behind when it came on, and um, and for that matter, the CCPA in California, which is that they treat users as mere users, as, as, as what in Europe they call a data subject. And the data processors <laughs> and data controllers were, were, the, were, the, were the servers. So I'd like to go to a, here's a case that I've been making, and I'm curious to run it mm-hmm. past you, which is that we made the wrong decision, we in this sort of geeky grand, grand sense among geeks, in the early days of the web to sort of get stuck on client server, which might as well be called slave master. Um, when we could all be masters um, of our own servers, that was cool. But now that we're not, um, the, the status quo became, it's up to all the servers of the world to give us whatever freedoms or security or privacy that we want, which is why we have to now, thank you lawyers, um, making zillions of dollars, have to check off that we have consented to terms that completely violate the spirit of the GDPR well, mm-hmm. um, well, you know, while obeying its letter, you know, oh, you, well, we got consent, you know. So, yeah. you know, and, and there is in me, as there may be in you, a Silicon Valley libertarian geek as well, which says that every new law protects yesterday from last Thursday and, <laughs> and has to be with us for the next X number of years. And also doesn't appreciate really what works in the thing that you're trying to regulate. And I think that's another of your points, is it not? It is. It is. Uh, and, and I think, um, you know, that Europeans, I understand that some of this is uh, some internal lobbying, some external lobbying, and, uh, and I think that, you know, when you, when you listen, when you see the returns that Apple and Google are making and, you know, there are these insane numbers, it is, you know, it's easy to demonize that. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that they have no shortage of stories of local European developers that have struggled or, you know, have not been given the same, uh, rights that Apple has that, uh, that they would push a law like this, right? So, you know, it's, um, it is almost like a mob, right? And, uh, and uh, I don't think that, uh, that we have really understood the problem. And I think that you summarize it very well, which is where legislation 
we're legislating for problems that we think we have and not fundamentally uh, fixing the fundamental problems. And uh, and I think that that is lost in, in the noise. I mean, I think that Apple has been trying to educate people, but uh, I think it's a lost cause. I think, I think they're going to crack this open. Um, so... So we are we are down in the short rows at the end of the show, actually past where we normally <laughs> normally go. Um, uh, are, are there any questions we haven't asked that you'd like to address in a very brief way, uh, or we could save it for another show because I, I want you back so bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We can do that. No, I think uh, no. The only thing I would like to say is uh, you know I talk about this MMT thing, which I, I find uh, you know. Uh, even if you're in your, I'm almost 50, right? Uh, even if you're at this age, it's a good time to learn how money works. And uh, while I do like Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, she just mentioned that Randall Ray has a new book coming up. And uh, I recommended it the other day on my Twitter feed. Uh, I'll, I'll try to find it and send you a link. But, you know, I, I really think that it is it is time that for all of us to upgrade our understanding on money, especially when all these interesting people are trying to take it away from us. So, um, you know, I'll send you a link later. I can't remember what it's called. It's yeah, please do. I love okay, that. Yeah. It's another pull quote. We need to upgrade our understanding of money. Okay, so so our last one um, uh, it is when we ask everybody, it's kind of a control question. What are your favorite <laughs> text editor and scripting language? Oh, well, I still use Emacs, so, uh, <laughs> you know, all habits die hard. Uh, I still use Emacs. I still use VI for quick edits. Um, I use Visual Studio Code these days, sometimes on and off. Um, I don't, I think if I had to pick a favorite, it would be Emacs. And scripting language, uh, I, would, I still use Perl. Uh, I know the world has moved to Python and... AI is all done in Python, but you know, all habits die hard. I still write my quick hacks in, in Perl and set and bash. So, you know, and I haven't really transitioned to JavaScript. So <laughs> that's funny. I was thinking that I think in answers to this question, we, we could go back and check that Emacs is about tied with VI and others of him. Okay. So, so on, you know, so, uh, and, and, uh, and with, with some very vigorous support. <laughs> so, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so I always have my I always have my Emacs here. Um, yeah, there's a, there it is on our back channel. So, the, Miguel, this has been fantastic having you on the show, and we will have to have you back. We said it to almost everybody, Thanks. but um, but I, I feel like we've left many turns unstoned here. So we need. To <laughs> well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to you, folks. Yeah. Thank you for the time. Likewise. Thanks a lot, man. See you soon. Have a good one. one. Yeah. So Dan, that was good <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Fascinating. I mean, as you, as you basically said there, I'm sure we could talk for another two or three hours and still have things to say. So maybe we should do that at a future, a future time. Yeah. I also think, I mean, one of the things that, uh, Miguel said, I think more than once, once around cryptocurrency and, and once around um, what's coming along with the DMA in Europe, um, uh, we're kind of at a at a threshold time, a liminal time, an, an in-between time right now, I think. Um, I'm feeling it right now. With We watch housing prices, you know, and in the U.S. they've peaked and they're starting to get soft. And they're... There are, there are a lot of things that feel like they're ready to crash to me. I've, I've felt like online uh, internet advertising has been ready to crash for a long time. Um, I don't know if that ever will because the illusion of effectiveness is too well supported by numbers, whether they're fatuous or not, they, they're there and the agencies buy them. But, but I, but I do think something's going to change. Um, I think we're coming up to a, a point here. And there are a number of things that just stuck with me from this show. Yeah. Mm, yeah, so. definitely. It was good to get good, good to get into like the economic stuff as well, which is quite interesting. I think we could have talked a lot more about that. We we can do that on I don't know economics weekly or some other <laughs> some other show. <laughs> we need we need one of those. We need one of those. Well, we've mm-hmm. gone way over, and we're gonna and we need to get to the post show. So, um, 
So, uh, so thanks to you and, uh, and we'll, we see you soon, everybody. Let's give him a second. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I forgot the plugs. I forgot the plugs. Because I'm I'm so aware of the time. Plug something, Dan, real quick. (laughs) Plug something. Um, Yeah. Okay. Um, I have to plug next week. Yeah. I'll, um, I can plug something. So I'm, I'm very quickly, I'm raising money at the moment for, um, uh, shelter which is a homeless charity here in the uk and shelter merseyside particularly which is the area i live in which is where liverpool is um yeah so i there you go ants already found it uh i'm doing a a thing called kip on the cop which is uh we're basically we sleep out for the night um and we get sponsorship uh to to do that so uh, a group of us are going to sleep uh, rough for the night outside and uh, experience what that's like, which hopefully will give us a better understanding, but also to raise money for um, other people in the area and to help shelter and, and to do that. So there we go. That's my good deed for, for a while. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks for that. Um, and I want to plug next week. We have uh, Andy Parsons uh, coming on. Um, he's with the Adobe content authenticity project. That is an open source project. And, um, has been recommended to us. So that is coming up next week, and we will see you then. Hey, we should talk Linux. It's the operating system that runs the internet, but your game consoles, cell phones, and maybe even the machine on your desk. You already knew all that. What you may not know is that TwitNow has a show dedicated to it, the Untitled Linux Show. Whether you're a Linux pro, a burgeoning sysadmin, or just curious what the big deal is, you should join us on the Club Twit Discord every Saturday afternoon for news, analysis, and tips to sharpen your Linux skills. And then make sure you subscribe to the Club Twit exclusive Untitled Linux Show. Wait, you're not a Club Twit member yet? Well, go to twit.tv slash club twit and sign up. Hope to see you there.